0: such a joy to be speaking this morning and be preaching this morning about salvation. Uh, there are not many more topics that get me excited and just joyful in my heart. And I hope that you will join me Psalm 107 this morning as we continue our series here entitled A Life of Worship. As we look at the Psalms and the title of this message this morning is Worshiping the God Who Redeems. As you've seen the theme this morning about redemption, the theme about salvation I wonder what it's like to be, to be rescued. This past week, we've seen harrowing photos and videos out of Afghanistan where people were begging to be rescued. We've seen failure of government where people were not able to be saved. Physically, they were left behind, and there's no telling what's going to happen next. What a tragedy it is. For those who have relied on a specific rescue plan realize the rescue is not coming. And when we talk about salvation and rescue, we talk about salvation. Really, that's what we're talking about is rescue. Being rescued, being redeemed. We talk about worship as well. We're worshiping the Lord who redeems. Why is it that God of all is the one who's worthy of so much attention? So much so that we gather here once a week, at least, to worship our Lord. What has he done that should motivate us to having this attitude of worship, that we come and we sing songs like this and we gather together, we open our Bibles and we let the Holy Spirit convict our hearts? Uh, you know, there are other worship services that could happen, could be happening. There are other worship services happening throughout our world today. In Myanmar, there are people gathered at temples to worship And then in other parts of the Far East, there are places where they are worshiping Hinduism. I should say in Myanmar, there is Buddhism. And the people go and they light incense to uh, altars there. Even in the United States of America, in the city of San Francisco, there is a church that is dedicated to the late jazz saxophonist John Coltrane called the St. John Coltrane Church. And the whole idea behind this is they gather, they play his music, they perform, and they sing praises about him. It's really bizarre. Why do we call, are we called to worship the God who redeems? Well, it's because he has done such great things and he's the true God that we worship him today. Well, we began with Psalm 1 last week in our series, A Life of Worship, and this week we're going to skip ahead to Psalm 107. If you look at your Bible, most of you will have, above the title of Psalm 107, something like Book 5, or Book V, if it's a Roman numeral. Because the, the Psalms were divided into five sections, or books. And, and the way that this was done was it was written, uh, the, of course the Psalms are very lengthy book and in the old testament how it was recorded originally was on scrolls so just that we have the five, just how we have the five books of Moses so we had the five books of psalms and each each psalm is an entire or each each book of the psalms is an entire scroll and here we have in this context the the the, the historical context of what we're dealing with this morning is that we have the nation of Israel that has been humiliated and exiled into babylon so it's after, of course, after David, after Solomon, after the split of the nations, the northern nations are taken into Assyrian captivity. Years later, the southern tribes, I should say, are taken into captivity into Babylon. We have a lot of stories about that with Daniel in Babylon. We have all this stuff going on. Then they, they are signed by the Medo-Persians, uh, Cyrus the Great, issues a decree. They can go back and rebuild their temple. And we have those stories in Nehemiah and in Ezra. We have the story of the reentering. And, and it's in that kind of context that a psalm like this is written. Because what we have here is we have, for the first time in a long time, hope. We have a physical rescuing and a physical redemption of the people from exile, going back and gathering together to worship the Lord. That's the the picture of what's happening. You can capture the hope of a nation that has been in despair for 70 years, has faced All this decimation and just subjugation and now they get to go back and rebuild their temple. There is this excitement and rejoicing because God has redeemed them. The theme at the top of the outline this morning inside your bulletin is we worship God because he is our rescuer. There are many reasons to worship him, but this becomes in the Bible a primary character trait of God for why we worship him. In fact, he's called our savior. This morning you saw a lot of songs our great Savior. We were song about sang about the fact that I stand redeemed. These words are key in our psalm this morning. Because he's rescued us, we worship him and we praise him. Let's pray before we go to the Lord today and we look at what this passage has to teach us. Father, we ask today that you invigorate our hearts with your truth, and that you show us from your word how we ought to worship you because you have redeemed us. Lord, let us be so thankful for the redemption. And for the power of the redeeming grace of our God who has called us and redeemed us and made us a new people. Father, may we as a church family be rejoicing in this fact and encouraged as we walk through this week. No matter what else happens, we are redeemed ones if we have trusted in the one who saves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few points this morning, you'll notice your outline will guide you through this. The first thing we'll see is the worship of the redeemed. The psalm begins in Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hands of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the sea, or from the south, as it's in our text this morning. First, we see we must give thanks for God's enduring mercy. He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good that call for us to be a thankful people. It is good for people to give thanks to God. There there is is right for us to thank the Lord for what he has done. We we worship him this morning partially out of a thankful heart. We gather because we are overwhelmed with our own unworthiness and the greatness of him. We're not here because we think we're great. We're here because we know he is great. And we thank him for that. We say, thank you, Lord, for redeeming me. Thank you, Lord, for your enduring mercy, the, the mercy that is everlasting. He says he is good. To give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His nature is good. God is a good God, and we can be so thankful for that. But notice that second phrase, His mercy endures forever. His steadfast love, His His covenant love with us, God's love to us is something that does not fade away. We've all been familiar with those... uh in fact, we sent our teens to the summer uh, camp at the wilds, and it always, when I worked with the youth, it always made me laugh because there would always be some sort of uh, camp fling that would happen where this, this, some guy would, would fall for some girl, and he would just, oh, I was so sad that I'll never see her again. And then, of course, in three weeks, he's forgotten all about her. He couldn't even remember her name. But in that moment, it felt like she was the world. And, and God's, God's love is not this, this quick and, and, and passing, uh, Bad. It's it is enduring. It is long lasting. God's commitment is based is God's love is based in commitment. It is based in covenant. It's an enduring love. His mercy endures forever. His promises do not expire. The promises of God He makes to His children will endure. Look at verses two and three, because we'll see secondly that because of this, we must speak publicly of God's redemption. He goes right off at the beginning and tells us what we must do. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What he's saying is is that you have an obligation, if you are one of the redeemed of God, to talk about it. You, you should say it. You should say, I'm one of those who have been redeemed, who he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. We are the ones who the Lord redeemed, therefore we should say this. And then in verse 3, he gives a picture of the nation gathered from all across the land. He gathered out of the lands, the east and the west, the north and the south. Uh, He he redeemed them, and the redeemed ought to worship God. What what an amazing thing that the worship of the redeemed is based in the fact that God has saved us, and we can rejoice. God has saved us, and we can give thanks. I, I think you ought to start your prayers. Lord, thank you for saving me. Why, why should you or thank you for your love for me? Why, why should we start that it it really calibrates everything It helps us see everything in perspective We never forget that we are one of the ones who redeemed And what it looks like to be rescued is in this next passage I want you to look at verse 4 because we're going to spend the bulk of our time here In the picture of the redeemed beginning in verse 4 all the way through verse 32 What does it feel like to be rescued? It's exhilarating What does it feel like to be redeemed? Why are the redeemed so joyful and ready to worship the Lord for their salvation? Well, this is a picture of us here. He's he's telling the story of the nation of Israel being redeemed from the nations and brought back. But but this is applied to us in the New Testament as the ones who use the same language, redeemed, as we saw and we'll see at the end of this message as well. There are several pictures here of what it looks like to be redeemed. And each one of these pictures gives us an image, a feeling and a responsibility. Like what? what is it like? I want you to use your imagination today. Some of you aren't used to using your imagination all that much. And, and you know, you, you're, not, you're like, I'm not a child. But I'm going to do like your, your kindergarten teacher said. Put your thinking caps on. Put your imagination caps on. And I want you to just imagine what's being said here. Put yourself in the shoes of the person here. Feel those feelings. Understand those thoughts. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's putting us in four different scenarios. The first... As he calls us like a wanderer who has come home, or a wanderer finding a refuge. I'm not sure which one I left there. I might have changed it on my uh, thing here. It's like a wanderer finding a refuge. Verse 4, "...the wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them, and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress." He led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city, for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness, for His wonderful works to the children of men, for He satisfies the longing soul, and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Yeah, I think what I'm going to have these right is like a wanderer finding a refuge. Oh, on the screen, it's incorrect. Sorry about that. Notice the condition first of all, verse four. He wanders in a desolate road. He wandered in the wilderness. In a desolate way. The wilderness is like the desert. We've been in the desert before with the youth group going out uh Las Vegas. We drove all the way to Grand Canyon and back. And there are places out there where if you make a wrong turn, you you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, and you're like, This is dangerous. Like we if we run out of gas, we're in trouble. It looks like Mars. And that—that's really the picture. If you go to the wilderness out there, like you're wandering, you're walking, and you're looking around. You don't know where you are. You don't know how have any water. And there are rocks and and there are outcroppings. There are places where people could jump you. You're in a dangerous spot. They wandered in the wilderness and they found no city to dwell in. They're looking for somewhere to stop for security. Notice the insecurity of being exposed to danger. Exposed to the elements. That's the feeling of one who's not redeemed. And further, he has physical problems. Physical condition is that he's wasting away. He's overwhelmed with his circumstances. Hungry and thirsty, his soul faints in it. He's overwhelmed with these, these feelings. So what's the response of the lost? What's the response of the wanderer who cannot find the refuge? What's his response? He cries to the Lord. You see that? Look in verse, verse 6. They cry out to Yahweh in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distress. They cry out to the Lord. And, and I think back to uh, the, the story of Hagar and Ishmael in, in the wilderness, crying out to the Lord. They are desperate. They don't know what to do. And that's in Genesis chapter 21. And they're sitting there crying out to God. And a voice comes from heaven. This is the picture of one wandering in the wilderness, not knowing what to do. He cries out to the Lord. And the response of the Lord to their cry, verse 6b, all the way through 7, as he brings them out. Because he hears them, he delivers them, he brings them out of their distress. In fact, the word is distresses. You notice that's a plural. Plural just means there are multiple distresses. It's not just one distress. It's not like you've got one problem. You know, have you ever felt that way, that you don't just have one problem, you have about 12, 13, 27, that are all hitting you from different angles? It's like I have distresses. I don't have just one distress. And my distresses' names are, and you start naming your children, (laughs) No, it's like that, though. He says the distresses that you face, the plural distresses, God brings you out of them, and when he remembers them, when he delivers them, remember, they are wanderers in the wilderness. How does he do this? He leads them by a right way, by a straight path. It's the same words, different language, but same wording that Jesus uses when he says there's the broad way and there's the straight way, the narrow way. It's the picture here leading them forth by the right way that they may go to a city to find a dwelling place. God rescues them. He brings them to a refuge. He brings them to a place where they will find security. Then there's the chorus of praise. Like many of our songs, that have a repeating chorus. This has a repeating chorus. And then there's a response after that. Notice the chorus. Oh, that men will give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of of men, Let us give thanks to Yahweh for his goodness. He is not simply good in the abstract. He's not just good out there. He is good to me. That's, that's important for us to think about. That God is actually good to us. There are a lot of things that are good, but there are not many things that are good to you. People who are good to you. But God is. He is good to you. His wonderful works. What has he done worthy of praise? Look at verse 9. He satisfies the longing soul. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. Think about being wandering and thirsty and tired, and you're just looking for a city to rest. You're looking for security, but also one of the things you're really excited about looking for is you're looking forward to walking in, sitting down, putting your feet up, and having a bowl of soup or a big steak or something to warm you, comfort you, to drink some water and be refreshed. That's the picture. A refreshed person who's found a place to, Where he can rest. What makes God worthy of praising? He satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with what is good. God knows how to give good gifts to those who are weary. Are you weary today? Have you been looking for a city to dwell in? Have you been looking for a place to find refuge? Jesus gives us that refuge in him. There's a second picture, like the bound released from prison. Like the bound released from prison. What a second scene does here is present to us in verse 10 the condition of a rebellious prisoner. He says, Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons... Because they rebelled against the words of God, they despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, He brought them down, He brought down their heart with labor, they fell down, and there was none to help. You notice the first group of wanderers, there's no indication they did anything wrong. They're just wandering. They're lost. But these are rebellious people. These are the ones who it says here, because they rebelled against the words of God, they despised the counsel of God, it finds them in a dungeon of their own making. You see that? They, they sit in darkness and the shadow of death. They're bound in affliction. They're bound in iron chains. They are bound up and the rebellion has landed them in prison. Rebellion against God. Rebellion against his word. They have refused to listen to God and they're paying the price by being in this prison. Now, not many of us are in a physical prison today, but it's possible some of you have faced the prison of guilt the prison of depression, the prison of your own making, the prison of your own sin. You have sinned yourself into being confined. And that's the picture here. You feel like you can't move. You feel like you're constricted. You feel like you're, you can't go anywhere, like you're, you're, you're going to die because of the sin that you have, you have brought upon yourself. And in fact, God is actually actively involved in constricting you. you know, look at verse 12. God is involved in this. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. God is involved in chastening you to himself you might be like it's not fair i don't like the fact that i feel this this guilt and i don't like the fact that i feel this in prison i don't like the fact that my sin has imprisoned me has it ever occurred to you that god is actually bringing these pressures on you and causing this for you so that you will recognize that you are in prison it's not the prisons today which have cable tv and a, and a gym and a, and a spa and a place for you to get education this is not what we're dealing with. we're talking about a we're talking about a dungeon in the first century or earlier actually when this was written about a, we're talking about a dungeon where you would have had no hope of escape. God has brought them down and they are very lonely in the prison of their making but what's the response of the prisoner? look at verse 13 what do the prisoners do? Then what do they do? they cry out to the Lord. you see it? they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. God is even listening to the rebellious God God has an ear. For those who have in the past been rebellious against Him, have been shaking their fist in His face, have been completely opposed to Him, He has given them chastening. He has brought them to the point where they cry out to Him. And what is His response? The rest of verse 13 says, And He saved them out of their distress. The the, the salvation is not that far away. It feels forever away. And yet God is right there. Verse 14, He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death. He broke their chains in pieces again, the distresses he saved them from. The word saved is Yeshua, where we get our word, Jesus. He saves them. He brings them out of darkness, and whatever is holding them there, he rescues the prisoner. He sets the captive free. What an amazing picture here. And what happens is these, these men who were formerly rebellious, again, sing the chorus of praise. Look at verse 15. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. For his wonderful works to the children of men, what has gone done worthy of praise? Verse 16, for he has broken the gates of bronze and he has cut the bars of iron too. We, we can't do that on our own. Have you ever tried to cut bronze with your bare hands? It doesn't work very well. You can pull as hard as you want. It's not going anywhere. God's strength though to cut the gates of bronze, cut the bars of iron. We cannot release ourselves from these prisons. We have to have a rescuer. We have to have a God who rescues us from the jail cells of our rebellion against God. And he does that when we cry out to him. What an amazing picture this is. This is the good God who knows how to rescue those who are bound in prison. Thirdly, like the sick who are restored to health. Beginning in verse 17, the psalmist introduce, introduces us to our third picture of a sick person who desperately wants to be healed and this person also is actually responsible for their sickness in some way look at verse 17 he says fools because of their transgression and because of their iniquities were afflicted their soul abhorred all manner of food and they drew near to the gates of death this is not the kind of sickness that would be like a cold This is self-induced sickness. If I were to draw this out to our modern day, this would be like someone who's been a drug addict for a long time and is experiencing the the problems their body now has because of the drugs they've been taking for a long time. Does that make sense? Or the alcoholic who has drunk themselves to a point where their liver is failing. We have someone here who is sick because of their own foolishness. They experience affliction. Affliction which means to be wretched. It means to be hunched up. It means to be curled up in the fetal position in a ball of pain. That's the picture of the word affliction. And because of this affliction, verse 18 tells us, it led them to abhor, that is not desire, any food. They've gotten to the point where they don't want to eat. They look at food and it's not attractive to them. And and you know that people who get to that point are very close to death. Yeah, what do they do in verse 19? It says, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distress. He sent his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their res- destruction. They, they cried out to God. They saw their solution was in one person. That's the great physician, the God who could heal them. And the same phrase as verse 13 says, the distresses that they have, he, Yahshua, he saved them. And he sent his word and he healed them. Now, if you notice, there's a connection there. And in verse 20, it says he sent his word and he healed them. What, what did they do earlier? They, they abhorred the word of God by their foolishness. The thing they were trying to avoid. Back, if you go all the way back to verse 11, these are sinners who abhorred God's word. They avoided it. And, and God says that actually the thing you're trying to avoid is the exact thing you need. Isn't that true of us? Sometimes people who are running away from God, they don't realize that God is the one who they need. He delivered them, it says, from their destruction. I think a lot of times our destruction comes because God gives us over to our own devices. Romans chapter 1 talks about this, the fact that, that God, a lot of our judgment is that God says, oh, you want to do that? You want to experience life without me? Go ahead. And see what it's like to be without the life-sustaining, life-giving God who's like a river. And you won't be like a tree planted by the river that brings forth its fruit in its season. Your leaf will wither and whatever you do will not prosper. If you you, uh, reject God, you separate yourself from God. God doesn't always say, no, I'm going to chase you down. Sometimes he lets you go. And we know the picture from Psalm 1 that we looked at last week, the picture of the man who's planted by the, the rivers of water. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper again. The connection is the word of God, the presence of God. You see that? And what is here that gives, gives healing in verse 20? He sends his word and it heals them. If you are struggling, if you are suffering, if you find yourself sick, your solution must connect to God's Word. You cannot find answers apart from that. That is the real answer. And then the chorus of praise, Oh, that men, verse 21, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful work to the children of men. What must we do because of God's praise were the acts. Well, the first two times we've seen this chorus, it follows the acts of God. It says, because this is why we should praise God. It gave us two things we ought to do. But now in the next two stories, the or next two like vignettes, the emphasis shifts to our responsibility. Look at verse 22. He says, let them sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Two things to do. Number one is to sacrifice thanksgiving to give thanks to god and sacrifice and to declare god's works with joy giving thanks and a joyful praise for those who experience rescue it's like being sick and close to death god reaches out and heals you because you cry for salvation and you rejoice in that there's another picture so far we've seen the the wanderer has come to a refuge the bound released from prison the sick restored to health and last it's like the sailor escaping a storm It's like the sailor escaping a storm. This is similar to the first, but the metaphor shifts from a man wandering in the desert where there is no water to being on a boat surrounded by water, a tumultuous area. He's just trying to get home. He's just trying to get back home. Some of you are like, I felt that when I've been stuck in traffic in Charlotte. I'm just trying to get home. But here it's much, much worse because we see in verse 23, those, it says, go down to the sea and ships who do business on great waters. They see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the winds which lift up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down to the depths. Their soul melts melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men and are at their wits end. He says they they go down to the sea in ships and they're on the waters when they see the works of God. Here's the picture again of men looking out and seeing the massive waves. And only God could do that. Being overwhelmed and just you feel about this big when you see the majesty of creation around you. And he says that they're humbled to stand at the storms and know you're at the mercy of, of the sea. You think the seasickness you get on a cruise is bad? Wait till you get on one of these ships and you go up and down and up and down. In fact, he says their soul, verse 26 says, melts with trouble because there's nothing they can do. Verse 27 says they reel to and fro. They stagger like drunk people. They can't seem to get their footing. It talks about the the ocean lifting up and mounting up. Uh, it's, it's talking about the wonders of the deep, lifting up the waves of the sea. Verse 26, mounting up to the heavens, going down to the depths. It's like, it's like the massive hill and then a massive plunge. And, and, and they says they brings them to their wits and literally this phrase means at the, when their wisdom is confused. It's like they don't know what to do next. The word wisdom in the Bible is connected to the word skill. You are wise in doing something and that you are skillful. And these men are skilled sailors and they come to the end and they're like, look, I've been doing this for years is what they're saying. And I have no idea what to do. I have no idea what to do next. They've tried everything and nothing has worked. And verse 28 says, then they do what they need to do. That's when they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. He guides them to their desired haven. Look at what God does once they cry out. He brings them out of their distress. Earlier we've seen in verse 6, we saw the word he delivered them. And then in verse 13 and verse 19, it says he saved them. Here he uses another word, and this is the word to bring out. And it has this idea of coming forth out of something. And here's the beautiful picture. It's like, it's like a fog is over the water, and out of the fog comes this boat. It breaks the fog, and you can see it, and it sees the land for the first time. It's being brought out of this, this turmoil and all of this, 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 um, this mess that they're leaving behind, and they're now coming to the still waters of the cove. That's the picture. And what a beautiful picture it is of the response of the stilled waves and their gladness because the sea is quiet. It says they were glad because the waves were quiet. He guided them in. God steers them into their city of their desire, their home, where they wanted to be. God leads them where they're going, where they need to be. They can look behind them and see all the turmoil and all the tumult and say, we're past that. Now we're safe. So what do the people do? Verse 31, they praise. They have a chorus of praise. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness, for His wonderful works to the children of men. What should they do? Verse 32 tells us that they should they should exalt Him in the assembly of the people. They should praise Him in the company of the elders. Like it says in verse 1 and 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Here they exalt God, they praise God, they worship God, they thank God. These are all aspects of worshiping the Lord As we've seen the picture of the redeemed, it's important for us now to look not only at the the praise and the picture, but now the God of the redeemed. Who is it we're worshiping? We've seen what he does. Now now the psalmist takes a a turn here and says that we should consider not only our redeemed state, but we ought to rejoice not in the fact of our salvation only, but also worship that we are rejoicing the God who has redeemed us. He is worthy of praise. He is a great God. That we are worshiping the one true God, the God of the redeemed. Let's take a look at the sovereignty of this God in verses 33 through 35 as we see His power is unmatched. He has power to do all kinds of things that we cannot do. Briefly, He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground. A fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns the wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. Just notice the power of God. He turns... Rivers, the sources of life, the sources of wealth and prosperity, and what people rely on for transportation, all of these things God says, I'm, I can dry that up like this. I can take a river in the wilderness, I can turn it into a wilderness. I can take a river that is flourishing and I can just snap my fingers in the ruler, and, and, and it turns into that which is a desert. He can take fruitful land, Verse 34. Probably the land of the wicked here, it says the wickedness of those who dwell in it. These wicked people seem to be prospering and God can judge them for their wealth immediately. And the God of prosperity and that even the source of prosperity for this wicked people is in the hand of God. God can can take their source of prosperity away. In verse thirty five, he can he can destroy and eliminate the wealth of the wicked. He can take that which is dry. He can also take that which is dry and turn it into a place of bounty. Turn the wilderness into pools of water. He takes that which is, is wet and flourishing. He says, I can take that away. And that which is dry. And he says, I'm going to bring life. That's the power of our God. He's a God whose power is unmatched. Nobody can do this. I can't do that. You can't do that. And many of us today think that we have this kind of power over, over the world. We think, oh, we can divert rivers. We can do all kinds of things. We can stop climate change. We can do all kinds of amazing things with our power, with our abilities. We are awesome. You know what God says? I don't think so. I mean, even recently, I was, I was doing some reading in Lake Mead over in, in, Las, Ve- in Las Vegas area. The Hoover Dam is drying up, and it is really, really causing problems. No, nobody thought that was going to happen. Oh, we'll just set this dam here, we'll do this, and we'll have all this irrigation. We're good. We are so proud, and we're so arrogant, and we think we can just do whatever we want. We don't recognize that God is the king of all the universe. You can save all the carbon you want, but one volcano eruption, and <laughs> forget it. There's more carbon in the atmosphere than you know what to do with it. And that's God's work. So God is the king. And we we are, we are not kings. We are not in charge of this. God is the one whose power is unmatched. And also he blesses the weak. Verse 36 through 41. He makes the hungry. Here's the picture of the hungry. He makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards to fill that hunger. They may yield a fruitful harvest. He blesses them that they may multiply greatly. He does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. He sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. We know these people are weak, because of what he says in verse 39 that they are recognized as those who are hungry and then there are also those who are capable and powerful but God takes the powerful and brings them low and then he gives the the humble a place throughout the scripture this is a theme every mountain shall be brought low, every valley exalted, the rough places made plain the crooked made straight he blesses them and he brings to nothing those who have been exalted and Thirdly, he deserves our praise. In verse 42 and 43, the righteous see it and rejoice. And all iniquity stops his mouth. There's two responses here. First, the righteous see it and rejoice. Why do they rejoice? Why do they rejoice at the work of God? They rejoice because they recognize God is the one doing the work. He's doing something marvelous. They, they recognize it. They see God at work. They don't excuse it. Oh, it's just the way it happens sometimes. They don't say, oh, it must be karma. No, they see God at work. And they recognize what God is doing. They don't dismiss God's work. The righteous sees what's happening. He recognizes the hand of God. And secondly, all iniquity stops his mouth. That means when God does these things, when he rescues those who have been abandoned, when he rescues the weak, the wicked can't say anything. We get to praise God. The wicked don't know who to praise. They can't praise anything. Their mouth is stopped. They see God working, but they have committed themselves to hating the Lord, hating His work, so they refuse to speak praises to Him. They can fully see God working. They can recognize what's happening, but they will not rejoice. They will not worship. They will not praise. Verse 43 with me. The last verse of this psalm tells us that wise people, those who fear God, will observe these things and will understand the mercies, the covenant love of God. Whoever is wise will observe. You'll look, you'll see, and you'll understand the loving kindness, the enduring mercies. Go all the way back to the very beginning of our psalm here, the enduring mercies of God. We know God is always faithful in what he's promised to do. Because God's covenant love, we can rejoice and we can give thanks because he's our rescuer. What an amazing, amazing truth. As we conclude, I'd like to pull out two passages from our New Testament that relate to this. First, This passage here from Titus chapter 2. I read this at the beginning of the service this morning. I'd like to read it again. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? Who gave himself for us, Why? So he might redeem us. There's our word from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. Titus or Paul here writing to Titus is using the language of redemption from exile and giving us establishing us as a nation to point out that that's what's happening with the people of God. God is taking people and he's gathering them from all over and he is making a new nation zealous for good works. And that's us. Further, there is how are we redeemed? This is one of the sweetest passages in the entire New Testament. I love it so much. Out of 1 Peter chapter 1. I preached on it last, uh, a while ago now. He says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges each according to his work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear, knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ oh. as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In fact, he was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope are in God. We are saved with the costly, precious blood of Jesus. That ought to cause us to rejoice and praise our God. Final question this morning. Can you with good conscience today worship the Christ who has rescued you? Are you one of those who was rescued? Are you one of the redeemed? What's holding you back from admitting your sin, repenting and believing in the finished work of Jesus to pay for your sins, which is a debt you cannot pay? Friend, today I rejoice in the fact that I'm saved by the blood of Christ. And I hope you can too. And we do this, we can sing praises to God. We can sing a praise because we have been the ones who are redeemed.